Take that! Welcome to Hunting Humbug 101 with me, Theo Clark. This is the second podcast of the new series of Hunting Humbug 101, and this is the original episode of the first series, if that's not confusing for you. Um, So this original episode was recorded with my father, Jeff Clark, um, who's also the co-author of our book. Um, And really, this episode introduces why we wrote the book, uh, and, you know, why my father, Jeff, who was an academic, um, felt the need to produce this text. Uh, And it doesn't look at any particular fallacies. It's really a general outline of some of the introductory sections of the book, in particular looking at some of the aspects of critical thinking and just the general frame of mind that one has as a sceptic. So without further ado, let's listen to the first original episode. Welcome to Hunting Humbug with me, Theo Clark, um, one of the co-authors of the book Humbug, The Skeptic's Field Guide to Spotting Fallacies, and I'm joined with my co-author and father, Jeff Clark. Good day, Theo. Okay, um, for our first little thing, I thought we'd obviously just start in with a general kind of a chat about um, what is humbug and why we kind of got into hunting it. Um, and then obviously as, as it develops later on, we do a few more of these little uh, audio podcasts. We can um, talk in more specific details about some of the different fallacies we've identified and we like to talk about and, and spot. Um, but yeah, first of all, I, I thought I'd just say what, how we've defined or the definition of humbug, which is deceptive talk or false behaviour, um, and talk a little bit about um, where you saw the need for introducing humbug to your student, or introducing the idea of spotting fallacies to your students. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that, Dad? Yeah, I mean, it, it was um, often the case that I'd read a student essay and they'd, they'd know that somebody was writing something that was suspect. And they could say it was suspect, just on an instinctive level, but they couldn't name a fallacy. I'd been brought up in my university education on on common fallacies, and so I decided to... I needed to give them some background in naming these fallacies because once you can discover the particular kind of fallacy, you have a stronger argument for saying it's a fallacy rather than just a sort of gut-level instinct. So was that, that was the reason I was interested in... Um, giving my students some skills in hunting down particular fallacies. Yeah, well, I, I think that's one of the main things is the actual articulation of it. Um, but I also think then when you have uh, understand there's those specific um, different categories of bad arguments people can put forward, you also, it then kind of hones your, your skills and you actually get better at spotting it as well. So it's not just that it's a kind of a positive feedback loop and, I mean, I suppose that's the same with anything. The more you practice, the better you get at it. So it's not just a matter of just being able to articulate it better, but it's also a matter of um, once you've had your consciousness kind of um, raised to the idea that there are these things called fallacies, then you can actually start to... Um, you, you get certainly your radar in on them, zone in on them more, and you get an idea of, of, of when you hear a pattern of speech and you think that's sounding pretty dodgy, and you can actually pick out those specific things and you can know what which the actual um, evidence they're looking for an argument or evidence they're hiding and those kinds of things. Yeah, the, the other thing about it is that, and which we shouldn't lose sight of, is it's actually fun that if you're watching a television program and uh, somebody's pontificating about something and uh, previously you might just say, oh, that's uh, crap, 
you know, no one believes that and so on, but you can actually name the type of humbug. And I'm thinking, for example, when we started developing our ideas and listing these things, fallacies, I can remember sitting watching TV together and we both sort of identified the particular fallacy at the same time. Mm. So it's, it's, it's a good basis for, ra- rather than being a passive recipient of information from, say, the media like newspapers and television and so on, you are an active critic of the information that's coming through to you and you know when somebody is on shaky ground. Um, and you also tend to refine your own arguments, so it, it helps you. Hunting humbug is hunting other people's humbug, but also you can hunt your own humbug in the sense that you can look at your own powers of persuasion and powers of, of analysis and that sort of thing and improve your own skills. Well, that's one of the things I think we emphasised in the book. The whole point of the book is it's a really small book, so it's not wasn't a book on critical thinking or how to structure an argument or how to write an argumentative essay. It was about how to identify fallacies, but I think we might have even used the metaphor of a, a sculptor with a statue and you, you cut away all the dodgy bits and you're left with the image of what you actually want on the outside. And so I think, um, yeah, it, it actually is a shortcut in a way to learning some of those skills. I mean, obviously, if you say writing an essay, you need to be able to write in the first place and you should have some idea about how to structure a paragraph and things like that. But in order to actually make a, a, a decent argument, you should, obviously, if you're trying to make an honest and decent argument, um, be able to uh, do, you know, dodge making um, fallacious statements, which um, kind of is just one of the things we probably didn't talk about a little bit but what actually is a fallacy and I think the best kind of simple minded definition I know is the it's just where an argument has gone wrong um, and so it could either be um, deliberate or it could be accidental as well and I think a, a lot of the time it is just accidental and there are some people who then deliberately use arguments they know are dodgy so using them in bad faith which is, will be a fallacy we um, talk about um, later on and also it's something that can be quite a part of that getting back to that being fun um, if, you, if it's not actually a a kind of something that's really important, then actually arguing in bad faith can be fun and using fallacies for evil can be fun as well. And I think you told me an anecdote or something where you, where you talked about that with a student before, so I thought maybe you want to um, reiterate that one for us. Well, I think the most outrageous example, um, and I hope this is not disclosing too much about you to the web, but the most outrageous <laughs> Um, oh, the making, other thing make, I thought, yeah. Up, yeah. Uh, I was going to say, making up statistics and also making up authors, and we'll, we'll get on to that in one of our other on bad discussions. Faith, yep, but yep. Fa- false attribution, bad faith, um, you know, if you just mention an author in a discussion to back up your position, the other person discussing it with you, the issue with you is unable, to, not in a position to check up on the author, so they have to take it uh, in good faith, but in fact it's in bad faith. Yep. Of course, then if someone ever does that to you, the first thing to do is say, oh, yeah, where can I get a copy of that? Can you send me the link to it? That normally can yeah. put the pressure right back on them. But, of course, Actually, that's the occurred... whole point. Being aware of that is, is the key point as well. It hadn't occurred to me, but actually a good way to get get going on a discussion where you're sincerely interested in uh, arriving at a closer approximation of the truth if a couple of people are in a room discussing an issue if you've both got notebooks connected to the internet, um, you can actually check in real time. Mm. It's not something I've thought of, but you can actually check in real time their sources and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, it's all to the good that 
because the information is so readily available nowadays, isn't a lot of it's junk, mm. um, that you can explore these issues much more efficiently than in the past. Well, I mean, the main problem with that, of course, is is people just will look at one particular study or one particular source and act as if that's some kind of arbiter of truth. When, of course, you know, especially in say science, that's not how it works. You've got to have a body of evidence over time and and people don't actually understand that either and that's of course not necessarily a fallacy that's just a general principle of how science works um and yeah and that can work in social science too except it's a lot harder to glean the 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 wheat from the chaff in social science but we can probably do a post all about social science at some stage in the future too but the other thing i wanted to talk about was um one of the um main things we talk about in the introduction to the book which is um, about the two important questions, which is what are you saying and why do you think that's true? Um, and that was, to me, that's just the basics of uh, any kind of course in philosophy, which would be about meaning and justification. And I think uh, that can actually be the main problem in any kind of um, argument you might be having with somebody, and where, of course, fallacies occur all the time, is that people, are, A, they're not clear about what they're saying, and also the person who's listening isn't making sure they actually understand what their opponent's views are. Um, and then they're also not necessarily justified in what they believe. And the justification is more where the fallacies specifically come into play, except, of course, with fallacies like gibberish and so on, where the what are you saying is not clear. But if you're genuinely a seeker after truth, which is one of the terms that we, we are very fond of using, so we're actually using the identifying fallacies for good, which is the truth-seeking. And truth-seeking doesn't mean you necess- that you guarantee you get to the truth. It's just the, a state of mind or a habit of mind where you're, there are no sacred cows and you're just simply interested in trying to certainly get rid of the erroneous beliefs and then try to arguably get closer and closer to the truth. And I think that's a habit of mind. And I think those two, if you can take away two questions... Um, certainly from our book and the blog, it's what are you saying and, and why do you think that's true? The, the thing that um, we've come up with in discussion before is just how refreshing it is to be able to discard an incorrect idea. So most people in arguments, they get ego, their ego is bound up with the particular position they take. But if you see yourself as a seeker after truth, you're not threatened by having your argument challenged because... Uh, the next time you're in an argument with someone else, if if the argument you're having at the moment can actually refine your ideas, clarify your ideas, and in fact, if you are holding an incorrect idea and it's pointed out to you, it shouldn't be a threat to your ego. It should be a, a point of satisfaction that you can change your ideas. Absolutely. I think that's one of the um, most difficult things for people to understand about... So, I mean, another, we should probably do a whole podcast, little audio on what does it mean to be a sceptic. And a part of that is people think it's such a negative kind of philosophy, but to me it's an extremely positive one in that you, uh, you withhold your belief on something until you have some kind of decent evidence towards it. And you're open-minded to different beliefs. You just are asking for some kind of evidence for it. And then you certainly don't take that belief personally in that, I mean... Given that most people haven't actually come up with the beliefs they have themselves in the first place, I mean, that's the thing that I find really strange is most of the time when you're, unless you're the scientist or the philosopher who came up with the thing in the very first place, you're just reiterating someone else's point. So why are you getting so hung on, on, onto it that you, um, find it so offensive to be shown to be wrong? And I suppose it's probably even the, the language we use, um, in terms of, um, uh, ownership of beliefs, you know, you've, you've, um, 
gathered a belief or you've appropriated someone else's belief or um, the belief is yours. So the the ownership issue into it, and so it's even written into our language. So it's obviously a deeply ingrained thing, but it's almost a um a I don't know Buddhist or Zen or something position where you just you can separate yourself from the actual idea itself and and not be too upset. And so I suppose actually the idea that we do have ownership of uh, is the idea of the way to think about things. And so because we have ownership of the of how to think about things, we're, we're, we're kind of immune to being offended by the actual end result being shown to be incorrect because that's not what we actually are passionate about. I'm not passionate about, uh, you know, for example, Newton's theory of gravitation, that it, whether it works or not. I'm passionate about science and the methods of science. And so if someone comes along and shows, um, for example, say they don't find the Higgs boson with a large hadron collider coming up, that's awesome. If they do find it, that's also awesome because I, I'm not interested so much in the answer. It's more the question that is far more important. I think it was Voltaire who said, um, judge a man, excuse his sexist pronoun, um, by his questions, not by his answers. And that was one of those, you know, quotations you hit just, just was a smack in the head for me because it was just rang so true. And especially yeah, I, I, disassociating I, your ego from it is the number one thing, I think. Yeah, I, I think disassociating ego... Um, is often seen as a difficult task by people, but I think it's actually um, you're emotionally cool. So mm. when when we say hunting humbug, the metaphor is if people take hunting as a kind of aggressive pursuit and so mm. on, it, it is in a sense that you're it's also a sport. However, yeah. it's a sport, but mm. but um, it, it's cool reason. I, I, I like to think of it of a debate or a discussion being mm. conducted. With cool reason rather than heated emotions, because That's right, um, yeah. uh, cool reason will get you there to a closer approximation of the truth. Uh, hot emotion will just get you to defend entrenched positions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, 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 don't, I don't think you can take the emotion out of it. What I think the emotion does, the emotion, the emotion is the, the driving force behind you wanting to do it in the first place. So it's the motivating factor. But then you've got to say to yourself, well, what do I actually care about? Do I care about trying to get to the truth or not? And then if you care about trying to get the truth, you've got to take the emotion out of it to make a, an informed and logical and um, evidential decision. And so that's the key difference. So our emotions pick and choose what we're interested in. And so, you know, for example, you might be interested in looking at, um, you know, psychology or you might be interested in looking at uh, ghost phenomena or you might be interested in UFO phenomena, that kind of thing. And that's fine. But there's two types of people who look at that. There's, a, there's the true believers who don't care about the evidence. They just care about the emotional thrill they get from it. And there are the ones who are just as driven and interested in it, but they actually want to know whether it's true or not. And so to do that, you've got to get your emotion out of the judgment of the evidence. And that's completely clear when you look at things like, say, um, uh, dousing or something like that, where people go and decide to uh, have a look at it scientifically and do a double-blind test. And as soon as they do, it's shown to be nothing more than just um, you know the idiomotor effect or placebo or just random chance, that kind of thing. And But because people are so emotionally attached to the idea of it, they can't accept that and they can't move on. And I think that's probably the, one of the number one lessons for hunting humbug. Look, the other thing, the other thing, CO, is you know me very well and um, as I've been talking about this passionate argument and cool reason, you know that I'm something of a hypocrite. In fact, I'm a bubbling cauldron of emotion during arguments, but I never show it to the person I'm talking to. That's right. I prefer to... Um, 
leave the discussion, you know, as a cool, rational being. And then on my way home, I just um, key the juco of their car on now my like way it. out or get tyres down. Hang on a sec. I've got some key marks on my car. Oh, no, no, that wasn't me. That was... That was... <laughs> we never argue. We agree on everything, yeah. <laughs> that was another psychopath. All right, good. Oh, okay. Yeah, look, well, just to finish off, I think it's... um. One of the posts I did on the blog was specifically called Fallacy, and I draw the distinction between an opinion and an argument. And I think a lot of the time people just make an opinion. And where people can go wrong in identifying fallacies is they actually try and say someone's made a fallacy when they haven't. And it'll be something we'll talk about later on in more detail too, but a fallacy only actually occurs when someone is making an argument, and an argument basically has to have some kind of premise and conclusion. And yeah, yeah. whereas an, a, an opinion is just someone's belief in something, or I believe this because I believe it. And in that case, you can just dismiss it out of hand. You don't even need to entertain it. I mean, if, if not, someone's not going to give you a reason for what they believe, yeah. some, for why they believe something, well, it's essentially worthless. That's just their beliefs. So that's that's what I call an opinion. Of course, it depends how you define these things, but that's how I certainly use the word opinion because I think it's useful to draw a distinction between that and an argument. And an argument is someone's opinion but with a reason behind it and they can be fallacious when their reason behind it is dodgy or deliberately misleading and so that's certainly a post to go and have a look at um, where I talk about the differences between those two things um, and some of the things we talk about are not specifically fallacies in that the argument's bad, they could just be a devious technique people use to try and uh, win so moving the goalposts or something like that, I, that's I, more of a, a devious technique. That's... I think you turn, coined the term invincible ignorance for people who... That was one uh, of my mates. Essentially, name, but, but they're essentially full of opinions. Absolutely. Uh, without, without any reasoning behind them. So th- their opinions will remain the same no matter what evidence is put in front of them. Yep. Yeah, well, that, well, I mean, we use the term simple-minded certitude, which is essentially the same, although I think um, invincible ignorance means you've got to give up as well, whereas simple-minded certitude, you probably think you might still have a chance with them. But, yeah, yeah. absolutely, and, and I think that's the key The key distinction to make is is if it's just an opinion, well, you can just ignore it. You can say, well, that's your opinion, and you've given me no reason for yeah. that, so I, there's no reason why I should believe you, whereas if you want to give yeah. me some kind of evidence, that's the difference. And if you understand fallacies, then you can... Look at their their reason and see is the link between what their um, evidence is and what their conclusion is is that justifiable? And if it's not justifiable, it's probably because they've made some kind of fallacy. All right, then yeah. I think we'll leave it at that, and we will okay. continue our conversations. We'll try and do it weekly, uh, and until next time, I hope you have a nice week, and I'll talk to you later. Okay. So that was our original episode of Hunting Humbug 101. The clips we'll be examining in the next episode, uh, as you hopefully, if you listen to the first episode of the podcast, I played you a clip uh, to do with the 10% of the brain myth, and your challenge really was to think about what fallacy that might be involved for that podcast. So the fallacy we'll be looking at is factoid propagation. So if you're not sure about that one, go have a look. There'll be other fallacies in that episode we'll look at too around to do with some brain claims, uh, claims we make of the brain, but factoid propagation will be the uh, main focus of that episode. Thanks to those of you who bought a copy of the ebook. It's on sale for about $4, so check out the website skepticsfieldguide.net 
uh, for links to buy it from Amazon, Google Play or Lulu. There's also a free version of the first edition there as a PDF that you can get a, a scanned copy from Google Books. Uh, and also there's the uh, some posts on the website that are essentially the draft version of the updated book for you to have a look at as well. Please, if you did buy a copy, leave a review on Amazon or Goodreads, etc., because that helps. And also, if you're enjoying the podcast, if you could give us a rating uh, or review on iTunes, that'd be great too, because that helps uh, get the podcast higher up. If you've got any feedbacks, ideas, or suggestions, or comments, you can email me, theo.clark, there's no E in Clark, at skepticsfieldguide.net, or one word. Or you could tweet me, at Theo J. Clark, or one word. Until the next episode, you've been listening to Hunting Humbug 101.